0: Hey guys, Adam here. This is not an episode of the Startup Diary and there's no Harrison on the mics today. Before you stop listening, this is still going to be an interesting show. This is an episode of Startup Stories. This is where I get to interview interesting people from the world of business and hear about their journeys, their wins, their losses, and what they've learned along the way. If you would like to go and catch up with every episode because season one has already finished, Head over to Startup Stories and hit subscribe. Alternatively, we're going to be dropping every show here every Saturday until the end of season one. There's eight episodes in each season. Enjoy. Andrew, I just want to say a huge thank you for giving it your time today to join us on Startup Stories.
1: No problem. Happy to be uh, happy to be here.
0: Appreciate it. For the for the listeners of the show, it would be super helpful for me just to sort of give a whistle-stop tour of who you are, what you've done, and what you do now. And I'm going to zoom into each part of that.
1: Okay, so I uh, did a degree in design, went into advertising, uh, ended up working for a startup in London um, that was an intermediary between agency and, uh, and clients. That was super exciting. Looking back, I realise now that was a real true startup. I was the first employee um, and all the challenges that come with that. Um, there, We had a good couple of years at that and then I think also if Sam, who was the founder, realised it potentially wasn't a it was a consultancy model, wasn't really going to be scalable um, so I looked to do something new and I ended up basically starting an advertising agency as a joint venture with a group that was listed on AIM at the time. Um, at that point, I was really younger, so I was like 25, 26, didn't perhaps realized the magnitude of what we were doing, but it was a fantastic opportunity. Um, Started this agency, had a really lovely run of it, sort of three and a half, four years. Made, uh, And I can happily talk about this, made a mistake of uh, going from owning a big chunk of my own small thing to taking options in the group. And hadn't quite appreciated all the implications of that, of it then not becoming my baby and me just basically becoming another cog in the machine, which I didn't want it to be. So I walked away, um, and because of the lever provisions, I basically had to turn my walk away from Equity, which was interesting, but at the same time was definitely the right decision to do. Still very good friends with the CEO who kind of backed me doing that joint venture, uh, meeting for a beer pretty regularly, and that that, it was the right decision. You You live and learn. Um, Then I was consulting for a couple of years. bit of a gun for hire for brands and for agencies generally, but I was always the digital side of advertising. So I was generally the digital guy in the room. Um, And so I liked side projects, uh, particularly ones that weren't completely digitally focused because it gave me a chance to do the stuff that perhaps in my day to day I didn't get to do. Um, And one of those was a pork scratching company of all things. (laughs) So... uh, (laughs) I had a phone call from my friend saying, I've had an idea for a, a business. Do you want to do a port scratching company? Um, th- th- that's the very shortened version. Um, and I said, yes, because more than anything, it gave me the opportunity to completely create direct from it from start to finish. And yep. at the time, I loved port scratchings. Um, so we did that. It went from a fun side project to basically my house on the line within about six months, wow. uh, which was which was. It both exhilarating and terrifying. Uh, From that, we ended up on Dragon's Den, took money from uh, Nick Jenkins, who founded Moonpig, had a real run, got it nationally listed in a few supermarkets and in quite a few pubs, and then I left end of 2017, start of 2018, um, and I spent last year figuring out what to do next, picking up a couple of non-exec positions, which are super exciting, and then I've invested in one brand, uh, with cash and then I've effectively invested in another brand with time. Um, but it's all now, I'm very much a food and drink guy now. So apart from that, but it's, been, it's been a pretty straightforward journey.
0: <laughs> so firstly, I've got to give you credit for how quickly you got through your whole track record. Uh, yeah. That's <laughs> impressive. And there's a number of things that I want to zoom into. Uh, cool. and, and selfishly, the, sort of one of the, the benefits of speaking to people like yourself, I'm a first-time founder. Yeah. Uh, so there's some stuff that you've been through that I'm going to learn from. And that's one of the core reasons I've decided to do this podcast. Um, so I guess yeah. one of the first things that sort of came to mind is the... The fact that you owned a big chunk of your your business, and then when you bought into the group, uh, it sort of left you with, uh, I'd say, smaller minority shares, yeah. and then, then you end up walking away with the leave provisions. What was the, what did that do for you emotionally in terms of when you lost control of the business?
1: Um, you see, at the time, I'm not sure I was 100 percent aware. At the time, I just found it as this amazing experience. As like, I it was effectively, I could say this was my show. It's very different, given kind of my age to what perhaps a lot of my peers were doing. But at the same time, it also wasn't a true startup in the, you don't go through the, I didn't go through the two years of not taking any money struggles. It was a a joint venture. I couldn't really afford to not get paid. So I was paid a salary from the start. Um, So it was always a slightly different setup. But um, when I, so it wasn't a case that I was sat there making big decisions at, at a um, as a completely separate business but they were, there were certain calls that I could control and what I perhaps didn't realise when we went integrated and I, at the time all I was really interested in was doing better work yeah. and being more integrated was definitely the better idea because we'd end up squabbling over whose P&L certain budgets sat on um, and so I didn't at the time I didn't quite realise the emotional side of things and then it was I just remember there was a day where we the, the, myself my creative director, director co-founder um, and and uh, and the the two the sort of CEO and his partner got a room together, and we thought we were going to discuss about hiring a certain person that we've been pushing for, and it turned out he'd been hired, and we didn't have a say, and that was the point I realised that ah uh, uh, I don't have the control I so I once did, um, and we I just had to think about it, and then I realised I'd, I'd made. A mistake there, there was no real going back from it. And so after a while, I just decided it was time to go and do something else because they'd because gone, particularly because it'd gone into options, right? And so the, they're only really worth, they're not really worth the paper they aren't printed on unless you manage to get that exit. Um, and I, I, had, I looked at it and I wasn't sure the exit would come. Um, which has which has proved to be the case, it may get it the, the business may now well get it now, uh, and I really hope they do, but they they 'd been for a right old term all the first place they 'd actually once already sold um, and their deal was a big note.
0: okay I guess one thing that I learned after the fact is when I went through my DB, because I raised a small amount of venture capital uh, is everything around options and lever provisions. Uh, when you're now moving forward, what's, I know we're going to jump about a bit because you've sort of gone from both sides of the table, uh, especially with advising yeah. uh, startups. What's, how have you learned from that? And what's the advice that you now give to startup founders uh, if we just sort of dig into that part of the learning you went through?
1: I, I think it, a lot of it's about being realistic, actually. Um, uh, so I, I think sometimes you see it far too heavyweight from the investor side. They, like, they, will, they will either be completely divesting. Uh, and you're, you're, the the founders have expected to completely divest and basically start again from uh, have their ownership journey. Um, but also I think the founders need to be able to go and raise some money. You're going to have to show that you're truly committed to the business because otherwise someone might go and pop a load of cash in uh, and then you just decide, right, I'm, I'm out of here and they're left holding the baby having piled all the money and then you've just sat there on a big piece of equity. So I think it's to be just to be really realistic and also to really understand your position because a lot of people don't, you know, they go and sign stuff and they haven't really considered it.
0: Yeah. One of, one of the things that I learned is spend spend a bit of money up front with uh, someone that's good at legals to actually just translate what you're about to sign into layman's terms uh, because oh, yeah. th- th- there's a lot of things there. I, I guess selfishly, just to really dig into this, is what do you do? You mentioned that when you when you take money, there is a commitment and you're saying, I'm here. What, in, what would you advise in a scenario where the the founder who originally thought they wanna build something that scales very fast. Uh, and then during that journey, they uh, uh, sort of changed their mindset of actually, uh, this, this originally was a scalable business, we're gonna raise, raise, raise to the point that they go, actually, let's just build the foundation to the business. Let's not take on more capital and let's slow things down. That's the that's point of contention for us being really transparent in our business right now, because we've got to a position where yeah. we're, we're profitable as a company. I have 12 people in the team and the mouths to feed and my degree of risk has gone down. Do you see that as a commonality or do you find actually the guys that take the VC money swing for the fences and go out of business? Like I'm trying to work out, am I a snowflake in this or does this happen more more times than not?
1: No, I think because especially because, because I've done food as well, food tends to be quite a different setup because you, you generally create revenues quicker um, okay. and you can show it, but you also don't get the valuations. So um, I remember the first time I'm a member of a... A group called Founders, and it's just a, there's basically a, a, there's about 300 of us that are all founders but all from different works of life. And sat around having dinner, and what I quickly realized is that most people talked about how much money they'd raised rather than if they made any money. Um, and we just didn't do that. Certainly, with the port scratching business, Snaffle we, and Pig, we didn't really, we really did bootstrap and we took very little money in that process. Um, and then, so I don't, I don't think it's, I think some people seem to see raising money as a complete badge of honor. And I, I'm not sure that's always the case. I think it's just about what fits your model and what you're trying to do. And there's, there's a lot to be said about showing sort of profitability and actually self-sustainability um, and doing it that way. Because otherwise, as you said, you're forever chasing the dream, forever raising money, forever diluting yourself. And you might get to the point that it still doesn't work out. Yeah, I
0: think one of the things that has been a learning curve for me is uh, everything's sold on the idea, let's get to scale. Uh, and the metrics that you chase when, you're, when you've raised some venture are very different to what I thought I had to do as a first-time founder. I thought, well, we just need to build a solid business here. I need to show profit year on year. And I guess it's that, uh, that <laughs> those two contradicting things that take place around a boardroom table that can sometimes lead to some heated debates, and that's uh, that's the, the challenges that we're going through right now, but, uh, enough about me and let's swing it back onto yourself. You, you then resulted in being a consultant for a couple, a consultant for a couple of years. Um, what was that like? How did you yeah. find your clients and what was the thing that you sort of specialized in? Cause I know a lot of listeners to this show have come from our other show and I actually did the same thing. I went from full-time employment into consultancy, then to build the business. What was, what was your transition like?
1: um so i mean predominantly in because of advertising i mean you can you can spin the consultancy freelance line it's pretty they're they're pretty interchangeable um some of it was i did actually go in more consult so there was a couple of brands that uh, i'd been introduced to along the lines that either weren't really in the situation to take a big advertising agency on but needed some of that kind of senior guidance generally from a digital point of view uh, and then it tended to be also be a couple of agencies that were looking to grow their digital capabilities, and I could be almost the, that team at the fr- at the front of house. Um, I really enjoyed it. I did find it uh, quite difficult to say no initially, and I took too much on. Um, and then that's that's always a tr- tricky part when you're trying to get from headspace for one problem problem to another. But once that settled down, uh, it, it, it tended to be quite enjoyable. Actually, I enjoyed the flexibility. Um, and it was, it, was a, it was a nice way of working. I, I did find myself... The only times I found it really weird, actually, was things like Christmas, when you realise you haven't really got a team and you get to the Christmas party <laughs> and you don't... The reason there's no Christmas party. Or you get inv- even weirder. You get invited to the Christmas party, but you realise you're not really part of that team and you just feel like this weirdo looking in. Um, but I did enjoy it. And I mean, obviously, there's, uh, there's, there's, if you can financially, it can be fantastic as well, just to give you that bit of freedom. Um, and it did, what it gave me actually was just a, time, a bit of headspace and a bit of time to really let the side projects and other ideas flow. You could just basically, as long as you could be regimented and go, I'm going to set aside a day to do my stuff, um, then that really was, that, that's basically what allowed everything else to flow from there.
0: And what was the thinking when you did the consultancy? Was it to get yourself some headspace or was it you wanted to build an agency or just become the most profitable consultant in the niche that you're working in? Like, was there a long-term it, it, goal behind it? <laughs>
1: um, there wasn't a long-term goal for sure. I was, certainly wasn't trying to build a consultancy business and bring other people in. Um, it was the opportunity to, one, put a bit of cash aside and get them saving. I wanted to buy a house and at least it's all down to kind of what, what the life stages you're at, I guess. I wanted to put some money aside. Um, and it, it allowed me to see, I, at the time I was actually, the healthcare side of things was big in advertising. I wanted to go and see if that was interesting. So I went and did that for a little bit. It turned out it wasn't for me, but it was, I'm glad I went and had a look at it. Um, and it allowed me just to get exposure to a lot more things. I just, I just felt I was still relatively young, and I needed to see more, more, just more, just more of the advertising world, and actually just more of the brand world. And I ended up working on some really big pitches, some quite big TV level pitches, and then travelling all over the world with it. So it just, it just gave me a more rounded view of things.
0: And that makes sense, and I guess it gives you the flexibility that when something interesting comes across onto your plate, that allow you to actually say, no, this is something I want to. Uh- I want to spend more time on, yeah. which I, I guess is what happened with the pork traction company, uh, Snaffle Pig. Uh, talk, talk, <laughs> talk to me about how you go from uh, not involved in the company to having the house on the line within the first six months. When you said that, I had to make a note of it. So I thought, I'd like a huge admiration. <laughs> also, that's, that's, that's scary stuff. So what happened?
1: Yeah. I mean, I it always sounds quite a dramatic line. The reality was we signed a personal guarantee on a premises um, but the reality was the only thing I had that I could personally guarantee with was my house, so um, it was at a level that if it really really came to it, I probably would have been able to borrow the money one way, but effectively, my house was on the line. Um, but he started off as very much with so with very much with a um, it, well, I was tapering down, so I would say okay i 'm just going to spend half a day on the pot scratching kind of idea, and I was just putting the brand together. And then it would be, oh, I think I need two days. And then it'd be three days. And then someone would try and book me um, for a, a, a consultancy piece. And I realized that I actually couldn't commit to that because I was too involved with the port scratching side of things. Um, and then very quickly, it just started to motor. We started to get a bit of traction. I was just completely drawn to it, uh, an enjoyment level. And then once you kind of start to follow that, it, it becomes quite hard not to follow it. Um, and so, yeah, so then the opportunity come, we needed a premises because we wanted to do our own logistics. The opportunity presented itself to take some, and the only way we were really going to do that is to start to personally guarantee stuff. So suddenly you're very much in, and there's no, there's no backing out then.
0: How curiously, how did that transition go? So obviously doing consulting, you wind it down and tell me if I'm being too nosy, but were you getting paid as a retainer, as a consultant at that point, or were you getting some equity in the business to build the brand? And then at what point did you say, actually, I need to completely stop my consultancy and, and make the leap?
1: Um, So, basically, I was uh, the consultancy side of things tended to be a couple of days here or there. Generally, it was on a rolling basis rather than a retained basis because it really depended on what projects were were around. Um, And that was propping me up while we were setting the the port scratching side of things up. But when it gets to the point where someone says, can we have you for two weeks to work on a project, and you decide you can't do it, they're going to go and look elsewhere. So, it was almost a de facto point of okay, this is going to have to stop now because I need to go and get on with my stuff because also I can't expect people to just come back to me um, when, you're, when you're doing the consultancy side of things, you need to be kind of available. Um, so it, was, it, it certainly wasn't a, there wasn't a really hard stop. It just, there, just, there was just a, a realization over a relatively short period of time that the consultancy side of things was going to pretty much wind down and I was going to be very much into food.
0: And at what point do you decide, actually, I want to, I want to get more involved in the and pig. And then how did you breach the conversations of actually getting some equity in the business? Because I know that the people listen to this show being number two or number five in a company is actually probably the best spot for them, but how do they go about actually getting some, getting some shares?
1: Uh, okay. Oh, so that was slightly different. Um, we were, I, 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 the agreement was always, we were co-founding the business. Um, okay. So I didn't have to have that. Conversation per se, we had a bit of back and forth in terms of what value to put aside to um, certain things that my co-founder had that we could utilize from an existing business. But on the whole, it was it was always in agreement from day one. We were doing that. I wasn't consulting into a brand. Oh, okay. um, I didn't consult into Snappling Big as a brand. I we 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 started that separately from the consultancy. I effectively did my consultancy piece on it, but that's what I brought as the co-founder. I brought the kind of the marketing and the brand side of the business.
0: Got it. M- makes sense now. So, uh, business starts to get a bit of traction, uh, and then you end up finding yourself the first yeah. person I, the first time I heard about your name was on the dragon's Den TV that I actually love, uh, uh, for, for a number of different reasons. <laughs> tell, me, tell me about the journey, and it's just me being nosy, is how do you end up on the show, and what is the show like compared to what you went through compared to actually what happens on the day? So I assume there's two hours cut to 10 minutes sort of thing. Like, Can you just, out of interest, yeah, just share almost that
1: Almost exactly that, yes. Um, we, uh, so you have to apply online. Um, co-founder applied. He didn't even tell me, actually, when he first applied, because he a complete detail freak and I'd had gone over that with a fine tooth going for a couple of weeks. He just popped it in a form and just applied. Uh, and they quite quickly got that. We'd be interested, can you do a call? Uh, and then you go and do a screen test. Uh, and when we went to do the screen test, by that point, we had our pitch written and we I'd sat and written every word, even to the point, time the pauses and everything, because we wanted to really make sure we could do it properly. Um, and then the actual, we wanted to do it if we had the the reassurances that it is real in terms of an actual pitch. I don't. We're not there to be set up to be someone's entertainment. So, if if we felt for a, a second that it was set up in like an X Factor type way of people are, are set up to fail, then we wouldn't have done it. Um, so you walk out there having not met the dragons. They don't. They've not met you. Uh, and it is a pitch. There is no. There's no. Can you stop and do that again? There's no interference from the crew. You aren't aware of. being there per se um but then he absolutely i mean we were in there for an hour and a half the edit was about 14 minutes Mm -hmm. um some people are much longer um some people still if 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 they don't like you and they speak you up and chew you out and and, uh, sorry they chew you up and speak you out then you're you're gone within 15 minutes and that did happen on this on this day we were there there was a chap who was in after us that was, was just in and out because they just tore him up um but for us, it was uh, we were relatively quick for a successful one. Um, and then the, the weird thing is watching the edit because you don't see the edit until it plays out. Oh, really? So you have literally oh, wow. no idea how you're going to come across. Uh, and it's my idea of hell as well. Like doing the presentation, that's my idea of heaven. I love um, coming from advertising. It's always put me on a, a strong base. And I love pitching more than anything. But so actually walking out there was very enjoyable because we knew exactly what we had to say. We were confident in what we had to say um, and we were well-practiced. But actually watching it back is just the worst thing I can ever imagine. <laughs> and I've only seen it once. <laughs> wow, you've ever watched so, it once. Yeah, when it played out the first time, uh, I basically watched it from my laptop, sort of staring at Twitter. And then my now wife and girlfriend at the time made me watch it, just sit and watch it once and that's as far as it'll ever
0: go <laughs> so i guess i guess for anyone that hasn't watched it as a quick spoiler you end up getting some investment from uh, i believe it was nick jenkins the founder of Moonbig i think you you mentioned that earlier uh, yeah, that that yeah. how long was the dd process after you actually finish
1: have nick really short actually uh, um he's a pretty straight up guy he, we I think we finished on the Friday. Uh, he has an investment director that helps him through the process because uh, they film over 15 weeks. So he doesn't want to wait to the end of that. So the, he had an investment director. Uh, he touched base the next week. We gave him all the documentation. There is the, the BBC do quite a lot of due deal up front, um, which is useful. Uh, and then we had, we submitted sort of our plans and where we were at. We, our accounts were in a good place. He And then he came down for, a day, we went through everything. We gave, just gave some reinsurances and went through everything, and then we just got on with it. He had, um, it was pretty straightforward. It's certainly not the case now. I've I've learned speaking to a few other people, that's not always the case at all. I think it was a lot to do with one. We've we had a pretty simple product, and we'd gone out and not spun any we're not spun any interesting tales in the pitch. We were very straightforward about where we were at and what we were doing. And also Nick is a very straightforward guy. He wanted to be personally involved. It, there wasn't any kind of shifting of the terms. There wasn't any I've heard stories of people being after the show's ended, they've been offered a loan rather than investment and those kind of things. So it was pretty straightforward. Um and Nick had some great articles as well, which we adopted, um, which was great. So we actually didn't even do a full shareholders agreement. We put everything through these articles.
0: Nice, makes it nice and easy. Um, Just to sort of, I guess, take it a little bit back, as you mentioned, sort of you're in your element doing pitches. Uh, For the listeners of the show, give them like one or two tips about how you craft a pitch that you think resonates because it's really interesting for me to hear that you... uh, scripted it word for word including the pauses because I think one of the pitches that stood out and not to blow smoke just because you're on the mics is it felt extremely polished uh, and all that makes sense now. Uh, For listeners of the show, give them a couple of tips of when you're pitching or presenting, what are some of your tools in your arsenal to get get some success? I
1: mean, at a personal level, um, I can't, present anything I haven't written. I've just never been able to do that. Um, Some people like to have it written for them, but if I haven't written it, then I just, I find it impossible to get a flow. So I find that's quite important for me. Um, I think always start with a a nice clear kind of attention grabbing moment that's really gonna get people interested. uh, And then try and have, I, I like to have some kind of narrative. So I like to kind of take people on a bit of a journey, maybe reference something later on that you've mentioned before. Uh, and then always try and have a, a nice, big, clean finish. Um, I tend to uh, bring in a little bit of humor in occasions, which is always risky, because obviously <laughs> if you get all in the faces, then, um, I, I, a lot of stone faces, then... But a lot of time, particularly when it's early stage, if it's investment side of things, they're buying you as much as they're buying what you're presenting. So if you come across as a, a confident, but... Friendly person has not been boastful but has a view of what they're doing, that, that makes a massive difference. And some people just aren't good at it. And if you're not good at it, perhaps you shouldn't be the person that's doing it. You know, like it, it, that's a pretty important part of it. It's just not for some people. And sometimes it's worth not forcing that and bringing someone in who can do that side of things.
0: Great bit of advice. I think uh, it sounds like me and you are on a similar boat. I love to present, I love to pitch. What's your advice for someone that's in a business that has the idea and is sort of the the brains and the driver behind the business, but they can't communicate to that level. Do you think it's at that point, they need to go and find a co-founder who can take that part of the business on?
1: I, I, personally, I think yes. Um, just uh, a lot of, I guess some depends on what the business is as well. Um, and there is that ongoing conversation about uh, something that was come up in a couple of times in the group I kind of, I, I talked with that, there's a difference between a founder and a CEO. Um, yes. and and they have very different foundations. So if you're perhaps if you're trying to build a tech business, and initially it's all about just about getting a couple, you and a couple of engineers in a room and really cranking uh, a product, that's then the communication thing's less of a problem. As soon as you then get into trying to sell it, or as soon as it's into trying to to bring in investment, then perhaps you need someone who can help craft that. Um, And a lot depends on the type of product you're trying to put, about how early you need that person, and whether you bring them as a co-founder, whether you pay them as an employee. But I think it's the same as the flip side. If you're amazing at the fluffy communication stuff, but you're not good at the the detail or the money, then you've got to appreciate that and realize that you've got to do something to fill those gaps.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. I think one of the things you just mentioned that I'd love to just ask a bit more detail on is uh, some people can be founders but not CEOs. How do you, I completely agree, how do you sort of see the difference between those two people? And I guess helping people be a little bit self-aware of um, which role they might fit under.
1: Well, I think because the, the founders the founders side of things needs a very different mentality sometimes you've got to be I said it's a lot to to your risk profile like do you really are you, are you happy to put absolutely everything into something that in 18 months time you might have to accept isn't going to work um and to really know your colors to it in terms of at a personal level you're going to go and build all those investor relationships and everything else it's it's an emotionally draining thing to do um but a flip side can be incredibly rewarding but then it gets to a point where you need potentially a different set of skills right it's that if you, if it's about when you start to really grow a team, and actually there's a lot more to consider in terms of sort of HR and culture and those sort of things, and then there's, it's more managing your exec team and kind of being an over, having an overview rather than being super hands on. Sometimes that's a very different skill set. Um, it, it, particularly because if you're a founder you and if you're a founder stroke ceo and it's a small team you might be handling say all of the marketing to start with and then you hire someone in and it's their job to do that and you've just got to let go of that and then you've just got to kind of guide them that's a very that's an interesting skill set to do um whereas some other people the idea of going through all those super hard yards in the early years just doesn't appeal to them at all, but give them a team to go and supercharge and sort of drag it into the next level. And that's absolutely what they want to do. And they're generally the guys you want to come on and bring as your CEOs or your MDs or whichever position you're going to call them.
0: Yeah, great explanation. I think what uh, question from me, it, there's some there's some examples of when a, a founding team or a founder can go from the one to three to the 300, 3000 and really build something uh, yeah. large. Uh, they feel like sort of like uh, unicorns in terms of leaders. Uh, do you are you in the camp of un- believing that every founder, the company as it scales, the company will naturally outgrow them, or do you think that a founder, uh, if they spend enough time on themselves and skill set, can always be the right CEO for the company? Like, can a company or w- will a company always outgrow the founder if it gets to a certain scale? In oh, that's a good question. I mean,
1: uh, I, I think the. It really depends on the other forces at play. Um, obviously, as a business gets to a certain size, and particularly if it's raised a lot of money, and it, suddenly you get some powerful shareholders, and you get uh, you've got a lot of other stakeholders, then potentially the business will pull in directions to what the founder perhaps wanted. Like it's the the founder becomes. Less, less of a sort of the less of the power and less of the direction because of all the other things that are happening, and invariably then it could well be that those two things just pull in completely opposite directions. If stars align and it happens that you you can constantly get behind that founder, you know, I guess Mark Zuckerberg's a good example as anybody, um, and he can continue to or he or she can continue to kind of lead it forward. Then there's absolutely still the opportunity to drive it as one group, but um, I do think. It, that, there, is that, there is that potential point where the, the two things are just almost at odds with each other because the vision that the founder may be set on is at odds to where the people that put the money in and actually where the control lies within the business.
0: Yeah I think that's uh, I think that's where the sort of the real sticking point is as well as especially when you raise external capital it's the control uh, as in at some points regardless of whether yeah. you think you're capable you might just you might not have the choice which is uh, I guess something for for listeners of the show if you're raising money just to be aware of just to put it back on to, to your journey andrew is at what point did you feel like snaffling pig wasn't the right fit for what you wanted to do with your life what happened at that point of the journey
1: um so towards it was end of 2017 um there, there, i mean there's numerous factors and it's not all for today but the the the, the short answer it was I, I i think i appreciate i really like the early really early stage stuff and i like that growing that side of things um um co-founder he he had one view for it i had a different one and it was clear that the, the best way to do that was that for him to take it on and me to go and, one, it allowed me to go and do a few other things that I wanted to do. Uh, and two, I was driving three hours a day to get there and it was killing me, if I was honest. Um, just that side of things alone made me start to think that perhaps it was the right decision to go and do something else. I was super, and I, I remain incredibly proud of what we did with it, but it felt like it was time to to kind of try to broaden the horizons a little bit and do a little bit, um, to do some new things. Uh, I got, when I, at the point I stepped away, I didn't know exactly what they were. I think it's very hard to do that while you're also full on and into something. So it was a chance to take a bit of a break and then to, to kind of explore some new, new directions.
0: Uh, firstly just super appreciate the honesty there and completely resonate with the, the travel time just the point that just over a year ago I just got sick of my hour and a half each way commute uh, so I just moved the office closer to home because I've got two young kids and sometimes <laughs> s- sometimes life happens and you need to I need to just wake up every day and enjoy what I'm doing and if I'm not enjoying it that's going to filter through to the rest of the team and it's just a disaster waiting to happen uh, 100% I'm like, That
1: and that, that the travel time particularly like, particularly if you're driving because I, I just found that as much as I liked being in the car, I found it was a, it's just, I, I just was frustrated by it. it was dead time. I would try and listen to podcasts or I would try and be on the phone and talk to people. But the reality is you can't, I couldn't get a lot of done what I'd like to have done. And you were completely at mercy for the M, on I was at the mercy of the M25, which is never a thing to oh. be at the mercy of. So... <laughs>
0: No, definitely not. And I guess that, that sort of nicely segues into the fact that you like to be involved in the uh, sort of the earliest stages of the business that then led to you becoming a, a NED, a non-executive director in a number of different yep. companies. Um, I want to talk to you for the last sort of five, six minutes while we've, we've got this time together to, to selfishly ask you, as I start to build out our board uh, and start to bring in new NEDs to the business, um, the word Ned and bored me, I'm new to this all. Uh, so in, in your opinion, what should a Ned bring to the business and what are the things that you think make a good non-exec director? And if I'm going through this courting process right now, what should I look for?
1: Um, I mean, the first thing I should say as an, I'm, I'm the very lightest end of a Ned. So, uh, it's not like I went looking out for a, a fairly chunky salary to go and do this. Um, I basically had the opportunity to – I felt I could offer a lot of value to a couple of guys doing their startups, um, where it would make – I could sit on the board and give them some guidance on some particular factors. Initially, it, it would be more from the brand point of view, but actually it's tended to be more just as a – in general – The general business point of view or it's been from a legals or fundraising side of things um and i think that's generally what uh, the ned's super important for is is to provide sort of a skill set that one you perhaps couldn't afford to hire as a full-time person or there isn't a need to hire that as a full-time person but they bring a very particular kind of view on a very on on an area that you feel is crucial to the business um and 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 from in my case, I've, it's also been that I've tended to be a bit more of a sandy board. I've been quite close to the founders. Sometimes the NED isn't close to the founders at all, and actually they're there to almost be a bit of a, uh, a bit of a, a challenge. Um, but in my case, I'm there to be generally being quite close to them, and I've been able to uh, be a bit of an advisor as well as the NED, um, as well as just a pure non-exec. Um, uh, when it comes to the slightly bigger businesses and some of the perhaps the conversations I might get into moving forward now I've done it a little bit uh I think yeah it's very much about just it's either a real bit of expertise in the area you're in and they can help you kind of make those decisions and join up some dots and provide a really uh valuable um, point of view uh or yeah or it's it's they're gonna be they're gonna have the ability to to really challenge you on a particular area but it's a challenge that you want not someone who's just coming from an investor point of view that's going to be there to put the cat amongst the pigeons
0: yeah I really like that and I just wanted to um, kind of focus in on what's the uh, I don't want to go into your specific details but what's like the financial arrangements or the commitments that that if I can't afford to one but I know I really want them in part of my team they really help me drive this specific part of the business but they're too expensive what what, what creative ways can a founder get someone uh, get that person involved in the business uh, and how do they pay them or compensate them
1: so I'm uh, I mean I'm happy to talk about the, the way I've done it because so, it's also what part of me appealed uh, to the opportunities and why I was sort of appealing to them um, so I've, I've done deals with sweat equity effectively um, agreed a day rate and I, I've found I'm more motivated by having a small chunk of something with the ability that may grow and helping further that than I, I am in mean, just taking cash at this stage of life um, that may well vary at a different time um, now th- there is a there's a school of thoughts that and non exactly potentially shouldn't hold any stake because they should be as independent and as impartial as possible. But when it's a start like it's needs must- um, so that's potentially the best way to do it. The, generally, if you're doing your doing a like a first fundraising round, you can put in a an options pool, and a part of that options pool can be then used for advisor agreements. And potentially, they are it can be an advisor, it can be a non-exec. Um, it depends on how how clear cut you want to make it. But that certainly that's how I've done it. Um, and then when you get to obviously you get to bigger, more established boards, it's it's much more clean cut because you get to real corporate governance, and it will be a. Straight up salary, and there'll be clear expectations of when you need to be able to offer some value and when you need to be available.
0: Super helpful. Uh, just for me, very helpful, just because I've got, I'm going through that process right now and I'm like, how do I sort of structure these deals? What's interesting. I think the share option pool is an interesting one because yeah, that sort of comes down to permissions from the rest of the board as well. Uh, so I guess it's taking them along yeah. the journey. Uh, one thing that I'm thinking about is bringing the Ned in just as a, as a day for the board meeting, spend some time ahead of time, pay a day rate for a few days, get them to understand the business, then come and invite them to present what they found to the board and, sh- and demonstrate the value that's net driving for me as the, CEO, and then bring up the fact that I'd like to offer some options. Uh, Andrew, listen, I super appreciate your time. What we like to do is wrap these shows up with seven uh, super fast questions, quick fire stuff, short answers. Uh, Are you up for it?
1: (laughs) Yeah, let's give it a go. Let's go. (laughs) See if I've got some good answers.
0: So number one, what is the one thing you know now that you would like to tell the 18-year-old version of yourself?
1: Um. Uh, to go to uni actually i was i can distinctly remember thinking maybe i wouldn't go because i didn't know really what i wanted to do and thankfully i did go uh and actually it didn't really matter they didn't know what I wanted to do a couple of years away from uni i already knew i wasn't going to be a designer um but from that point i was i was already learning and i, I feel that i got more from it a lot more from it than, than a degree
0: Like it. Uh, What is the number one tool, service or hack that you use to get work done that the listeners of this show may never have heard of?
1: I'm not sure I've got one. I've tried loads of tools and and what I've found is I I always end up being a bit distracted or I start them and I don't carry through with them. I'm very much a pen and paper guy and make lists. So I'm, I'm pretty sure your listeners would have heard of that, but that just tends to be how I work.
0: I'm finding it so hard not to do follow-up questions, by the way, when we do these follow-ups. So I just wanted to dig into the stuff you tried and failed with, but let's, let's keep it moving. What is the best piece of advice you have been given and who gave it to you? Uh, that's a good question. Uh,
1: you know, I can't remember, and it might have been a couple of people over the time we've talked about it, but um, I, I've very much become a believer in chapters. I mean, I've kind of had chapters now, but, but to see your career and your projects as chapters, not to just so and not all of those will end exactly how you want to do, but they all add to your kind of overall story. Um, and so you just, when the one chapter closes, it means you get the chance to work on your next one.
0: I really like that as a mindset piece. That's, that's really cool. I've never really heard of it put like that. Um, what was the last thing you looked at and thought, I could make a business out of fixing that problem?
1: Uh, this one annoys me every day. Is that I walk past at the bottom of my road is a uh, an amazing playground and park, um, and every day I walk past it and I see these uh, some mums and dads stood there pushing kids on swings and no one sells them any drinks. It's like you could just, it's like the most prime place for a little cafe. And actually to the point that the corner shop opposite uh, went up for a lease and I made an inquiry to see if I could get hold of it, but someone had already got it in front of me. But if that doesn't become a cafe, uh, it's going to bother me every day carrying on as well. <laughs>
0: that's amazing uh, there's a side story to how our co-founder of our podcast wanted to create a tanning salon in ashby and spoke about it for <laughs> ne- spoke about it for nearly a year he was like we've got to do it and then like four weeks after he's like we should do it and he's pricing with up oh, it became a tanning salon uh, it's, so yeah was, so
1: often it's the case isn't it if you don't if you don't go and uh, if you don't act on them someone invariably will do it and it's I, so frustrating
0: agree take the action if you recommend one book or podcast what is it
1: uh i'm gonna oh who should i give up so um, i mean i really like the I, I like founder stories type podcasts um and a friend of mine a guy called dan murray runs one called secret leaders uh that's excellent and um, he just tends to ask pretty interesting questions and actually the first couple from the very first series the first person he interviewed was nick jenkins and i'd urge anyone to have a listen to that because you get an understanding of what a nice and fair bloke nick is
0: that's a new one for me. I'm definitely going to check that out. Uh, last two, who's had the largest impact in your life?
1: Uh, probably my dad, um, just because that, that's a very cheesy answer, but like, he, he, he's completely opposite of me in a lot of ways. He worked for one company from the age of 16 to 67, um, wow. but he's, he's generally been, uh, he's, he's a pretty constant bloke. and me I'm very much my father's son, so uh, I would say my dad.
0: Love that, a lot of respect for it. And last but not least, what is the number one piece of advice you give to first-time founders?
1: Um, it's probably to go back to that chapter thing and just when they're really just tearing out their hair and just really, really struggling is to just sit there and understand what's the worst that can happen. Um, And actually that then comes down to things like personal guarantees and all that stuff is just to really understand what's the worst that can happen. Because um, if you can keep that at a nice manageable level, then it really helps just from a mental health point of view and just from a positivity point of view.
0: Andrew, appreciate all those answers and the honesty you've dropped on the mics today. Um, For everyone listening, what are you working on and where can they learn more about yourself?
1: Uh, so, I've kind of the two main things I'm involved with at the moment. I've put uh, invested a bit of money and, a, and I'm an advisor for a brand called Oggs, which is uh, an aquafarber brand. So, it's the liquid chickpeas sitting and it's an egg replacement, which is obviously a very long way from port scratchings, but uh, <laughs> it manifests itself into a, a range of interesting cakes that are going to launch into one of the major supermarkets shortly. Uh, and then the other how, side do, of- how
0: do you spell that? Sorry to interrupt.
1: Ogs, O double G S, can't, can't be called eggs, so it's ogs, uh, and that's super exciting. And, and the, the Hannah's a fan of that. She's a- not a rock star, so I'm really pleased to be involved there. Uh, and then the thing I put my most time is I'm a partner of a uh, a vegan junk food brand, which again is a long way from scratching. It's called Biff's Kitchen and Biff's Jack Shack, uh, and we are taking that started in street food and now it's really grown up, and we're pivoting into products. So that's what I've been working on, and we're just closing our investment round. So that's been an exciting time. Um, and then the other thing I do, if anyone is into f and b food and beverage is i do a podcast called the blue plaster podcast which is purely aimed at the startup food and beverage world um which is a lot of fun to do and it just uh, very much like your podcast gives me the chance to talk to people and just learn lots more as we go
0: i love that and the one person i'm gonna send this to straight away is a chap called stephen may within our community who's just founded a company called fruits for drinks i think you guys would get on like a house on fire um andrew You know what, i've heard i've heard.
1: Oh, business I have heard of that business
0: that's amazing that's good to hear yeah he's, uh, it's like a rocket ship over there for those guys right now um, listen you've been an absolute pleasure to speak to I could, I could literally take another two hours of your time but I'd be respectful thank you so much for being one of our first guests on the Startup Stories appreciate it I'm Andrew and if anyone wants to reach out and have, has any follow-up questions what is the best way for them to get in touch
1: uh, generally LinkedIn is a pretty easy way I am a, I'm a, I'm a bit of a LinkedIn junkie so uh, I'm Andrew Michael Allen on LinkedIn
0: Appreciate it, mate. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you so much. Hey, guys. Hope you enjoyed that interview. Don't forget, head over to Startup Stories and hit subscribe because that's where you can find all of season one and be ready for when we drop season two. Speak to you soon.